so much for your word. I thank you, Lord, for this study and all that we've learned so far from it, Lord. I just ask that this time be pleasing to you. In Jesus' name, amen. So I want to start off by thanking my husband for all of his notes on 1 Peter and all of the commentaries that he loaned to me. Without those, I don't know where I would have been as I was going through this. So I don't have a joke. I'm sorry. That's Michelle's thing. <laughs> Last night I was explaining to everyone how many notes my husband sent me and um, how he had a plethora of sermons just on this first chapter. And I said, and I get 30 minutes. So there's my joke. <laughs> so have you ever been in the midst of great suffering, be it persecution or a trial, and thought to yourself, what in the world is going on? How can I ever get through this? Why is this happening? As a Christian, how am I supposed to act in this situation? I don't know if I can take much more of this. If I only knew the outcome of this, it would help me and I could make it through. Or God, where are you in all of this? In the aftermath of the most recent school shooting, I am sure that the families and community in Tennessee have been asking themselves some of these very same questions. Some of the Twitter discussions of this horrific tragedy have painted Christians in a negative light and even mocked the people who have lost their loved ones for not praying enough. Because this occurred on a Christian school campus, and this wickedly sinful act was committed by someone who was born female, but now uses male pronouns, some very influential media personnel have agreed with tweets that are attacking the victims and their beliefs in God and placing the blame on them. Ladies, this study in 1 Peter is exactly what we need to prepare ourselves for this type of persecution of Christians in the United States. How do we face trials and tribulations, persecution, and mocking of our faith in a God-honoring way? We begin this week with a new book that is written to believers who are enduring much persecution and most likely were feeling this very same way. We learned from Miriam in her introduction to 1 Peter that Peter is writing to Christians who are scattered throughout Rome and have been blamed by Nero for the fires which destroyed Rome. As a result of this, they were beginning to experience persecution and were in the midst of much suffering. Peter is writing to them to encourage them, and I believe in this opening chapter of 1 Peter, we will see how he sets the stage for the whole letter by helping his readers, and therefore all believers in Christ, focus on the joy of their salvation so that they can live a life with purpose. It is in chapter 1 of 1 Peter where Peter places a believer's focus where it should be. In the first 12 verses, he does an excellent job of encouraging suffering believers while giving them a lesson on their salvation. Then, in verses 13 through 25, Peter explains why our current struggles have meaning and how they give our lives a purpose. In the opening verses, Peter identifies himself as the author in addition to establishing his God-given authority as an apostle of Jesus Christ. So his readers would be encouraged that these exhortations were coming from God himself. We know a lot about Peter from scripture, and the readers of this letter would also recognize the author as the same Peter who was a bold disciple, yet still experienced failure in his walk. 
In spite of his failures, Peter became a pillar of the early church and a respected apostle who spoke the very words of God, which we are blessed to study and learn from today. After identifying himself, he directs their attention to who they are. Peter refers to them as those who are elect exiles of the dispersion. And I'm reading from the ESV version. This salutation was a reminder to the recipients that this earth is not their home. The terms used for elect exiles or chosen sojourners or aliens who are chosen, depending on what version you are reading, are referring to their status as Christians in this world. While they were scattered around Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, these believers were not necessarily all foreigners to this land, as the word exiles would have you believe. Instead, Peter refers to the recipients of this letter as exiles, not because they live in a foreign country, but instead they are exiles because this world is not their home, because their citizenship as Christians is in heaven. Peter specifically calls them elect exiles, which refers to God's election of them before the world began. Peter also places the focus on God's foreknowledge of them when referring to his sovereign election of them. One commentator I read on this stated it this way. According to the foreknowledge suggests according to God's fatherly care for you before the world was made. This commentator went on to determine what exactly is according to the foreknowledge of God in these verses. After discussing the language, the commentator concluded that, and I quote, it implies that their status as exiles, their privileges as God's chosen people, even their hostile environment in Pontus, Galatia, etc., were all known by God before the world began. All came about in accordance with his foreknowledge, and thus, we may conclude, all were in accordance with his fatherly love for his own people. Such foreknowledge is laden with comfort for Peter's readers. End of quote. By beginning his letter in this way, Peter is comforting the recipients by reminding them who they really are. They are God's chosen people whose true citizenship is in heaven, not on this earth. They are elect exiles, and if you are saved, you are an elect exile too. If you have repented of your sin, turned away from that sin, and placed your belief in Jesus and him alone for your salvation, you have this same comfort in your life. Christians can rest in all circumstances, knowing that life on earth is temporary, because our true citizenship is in, is in heaven and is eternal. In addition, we can take comfort knowing that our Heavenly Father has chosen us and placed us right where we are for His greater purposes. Think about that for a moment. The God who created you and loves you more than anyone, the God who loved you so much that while you were dead in your sins and trespasses, sent His Son to die for you and pay the penalty for your sin, that very same God knew everything about you before the world began. All the good and all the bad. And he still chose you for salvation. This loving Heavenly Father and his sovereign is in sovereign control over your circumstances. Nothing you experience is a surprise to him. 
This is why we can trust in the Lord with all our heart and lean not on our own understanding, as it says in Proverbs. Trust in God. Trust that he has your best interests in mind. And even though life is hard and at times excruciatingly painful, remember that he chose you and whatever trial you are going through is part of his plan for you. But also remember that this place is not your home because you have an eternal home in heaven that he prepared for you. You are an elect exile according to the foreknowledge of God. But wait, there's more in these verses that we need to see. We not only need to see the work of our Heavenly Father choosing believers before the foundation of the earth, but we also see the part played by each person of our triune God. Peter goes on to say, in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus and for sprinkling with his blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. Peter just explained how in eternity past, God the Father chose them to place his love upon them, and he now goes on to state how that is a present reality for them through the sanctification of the Holy Spirit. God chose them, and at the moment of their salvation, they were set apart for holiness by the Holy Spirit. Sanctification refers to the work of the Holy Spirit and marking believers as holy before God immediately after their salvation, in addition to his ongoing work in their lives to make them more Christ-like. Peter continues by using some interesting imagery to make a point. He says, for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood. The recipients of this letter would understand that this is describing what occurred in the Old Testament when the people were sprinkled with blood in Exodus chapter 24. At that time, Moses gathered the people to read the law to them, and the people promised to obey. And I'm reading from Exodus 24, verses 7 and 8. Then he, which is referring to Moses, took the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of the people. And they said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do and we will be obedient. And Moses took the blood and threw it on the people and said, Behold, the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. I believe this is what Peter had in mind here, but the difference with what occurred in the Old Testament and what Peter is saying here is that the people in the Old Testament promised to obey, yet we know they completely rejected God. But here, what Peter is describing is a new covenant of obedience, which is to Christ and through his atoning blood that is capable of being kept by believers because of the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit. Believers are set apart for obedience to Christ. Christ is our perfect example of obedience. And once we are saved, we are being conformed more and more to his image through our sanctification. Next, Peter says, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. Because of this salvation, Peter had a desire for these believers to experience God's grace and peace to the fullest measure, even in the midst of their trials. And the way for them, and even for us today to do this, is to remember what a great salvation we have been granted. Peter then continues with a heartfelt praise and worship of God in the next verses. Verses 3 through 5. Blessed be God the Father, God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. 
to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In these three verses, Peter helps place the focus on what truly matters. Praising God for the hope we have been given as a result of the salvation we have through Christ. God, in his great mercy, saw sinners unable to save themselves, unable to live the required life of perfection, sinners in need of a savior, and he had compassion on us, and he provided what was necessary for us to receive that salvation. God sent his son to live the perfect life we couldn't and to pay the penalty for our sin by dying on the cross. But we see in these verses that our hope is a living hope because Jesus rose again from the dead, conquering sin and death for us. The Bible tells us that if we repent of our sins and believe in the one who died for those sins, we will be saved. And if we are saved, we have a living hope because our Savior is alive. Ladies, in light of this week and what we are celebrating on Resurrection Sunday, this should cause us to burst out into praises. These verses show us that we are born again and have a living hope, and with that comes an inheritance. This inheritance is described here as imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. This description is opposite of our world. Our world is perishing through death and decay. Our world is defiled by sin. And our world is fading and will not last forever. Praise be to God that we are exiles here. This world is not our home. And we have an inheritance that is being kept for us in heaven. Our inheritance is being reserved for us in heaven. This is God's plan of salvation. In eternity past, he chose those whom he would save. And in eternity future, he gives them their inheritance in him. To spend eternity with him in our glorified bodies with no more sin to fight. I can't wait. No one can take away this inheritance. Nothing we can ever have in this present world can compare to what we have waiting for us in heaven if we are saved. We did nothing to deserve God's favor to be lavished upon us in this way. That is his mercy, and that is worthy of our praise. Peter has already given these suffering believers so much to help them have the right perspective of their lives, and he continues by pointing out in verse 5 that they are being kept safe right now through God's power, and that they will experience their salvation in full when it will be revealed in the last time. This is such a comforting truth for anyone who is anxious about the future and what it may hold for Christians. There is no need to fear any trials we may face. Just like it says in Psalm 118, verses 6 and 7, the Lord is on my side. I will not fear. What can man do to me? The Lord is on my side as my helper. I shall look in triumph on those who hate me. Remember, there is an inheritance waiting for you in heaven, and God Almighty in his sovereignty has placed you where you are, and he is protecting you now, and you are guaranteed to experience a future with him. 
Peter continues his letter by giving them a reason for their suffering in verses 6 through 9. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold, that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. The suffering that Christians experience has a purpose and a reward. This section of scripture just amazes me. God and his sovereignty uses the trials in our lives to prove to us that our faith is genuine. And in the end, he'll reward us for it. It is through persecutions and suffering that those who truly believe stand firm in their faith. God gives them the strength to endure whatever may come their way. And when they make it out on the other side of the trial, they are more like Christ. I heard one pastor say, you want trials in your life. It is trials that prove to you that you are saved. God uses trials in our life to refine us, to show us who we are in him, to strengthen our faith in him, to grow us in our walk with him. That is how James can say in chapter 1, verses 2 through 4, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. As Christians, we can rejoice in our sufferings. This is a paradox, because while going through extremely difficult circumstances, the last thing we may think about is being joyful. But the Bible makes it clear that suffering and joy go hand in hand for believers. In this passage, Peter is stating that these believers are rejoicing in the fullness of the realities of what their salvation brings to them. That is the source of their rejoicing. In this you rejoice. It's referring back to the previous verses and saying, you rejoice because you have a future inheritance as a direct result of your salvation. And even though you are going through suffering right now, you have this future hope to keep your eyes on that causes a deep joy inside of you that is inexplicable. The trials these people were experiencing grieved them. The trials were causing them pain and suffering. What caused these believers to rejoice was their belief in Jesus. Even though they had never seen him, they still love him. These believers knew their pain was but a moment in comparison to what they had waiting for them in the future. They found their rest and peace in Christ and the fullness of their salvation. And this caused them unutterable and exalted joy. I want to look closer at verse 7 because when Joe taught over this, it made me cry. When I first read these verses, I assumed that praise and glory and honor is a result, that is a result of the testing of our faith is to God because God deserves all praise and glory and honor. And ultimately, we do give him all praise and honor and glory. But what Peter is actually saying here is in the end, at the final judgment, referred to by Peter as at the revelation of Jesus Christ, when God reveals the heart of man, God will reward those who suffered these trials and whose faith was proven real. He will give them praise and honor 
and glory at that time. What? That just blows my mind. Our God, who created us, who chose us before the foundation of the world to set his love upon us, who gave us salvation through the death and resurrection of his only son, who draws us to himself, who through the Holy Spirit gives us all we need to live our lives in obedience to him, who gives us the strength to endure all that we face here, that very God, when Jesus returns, will give praise and glory and honor to those who have suffered various trials and whose faith is proven real. That's amazing. Absolutely amazing. In order to help his readers gain a greater appreciation for their salvation, Peter explains in verses 10 through 12 that even the prophets and angels have an interest in knowing more about it. Peter expresses how the prophets who prophesied about a Savior searched and studied and longed to understand the full scope of the salvation to come. They were inspired by the Spirit of God, writing these things about the Savior down, while never being able to realize them in full. They knew it was special, and they sought to discover all they could about it. The recipients of this letter had such a privilege to experience this wonderful salvation in their day. They understood that the prophecies being taught to them were speaking about Jesus because they lived after the Messiah had come, and the Holy Spirit had revealed this truth to them. And ladies, today, we have even more than what the readers of this letter had. We have the full canon of Scripture. We have all of the prophecies written down and compiled for us to show us that Jesus is the one they prophesied about. We have an amazing gift. Peter goes on to point out that even the angels long to look into these things. That's how awesome our salvation is. Even the angels in heaven the very ones who played an important part in announcing the Savior, even these angels long to look into the, our salvation. They don't understand it because salvation is not for them. They can never understand the inexpressible, glory-filled joy that salvation br brings to a believer because they will never experience being saved from sin. We have been given a privilege that the holy angels in heaven long to understand. What an incredible gift that we have been given. After explaining to them who they are as chosen exiles and giving them a full understanding of their amazing salvation and all that it includes, Peter moves on to what these believers need to do in light of this incredibly amazing gift that God has given them. In verse 13 he says, Therefore... So in light of everything that God has done for you, your response should be this. In the remaining verses, Peter exhorts these believers to live out their faith. First, he tells them to prepare their minds in order to act. The term for prepare is a military term, which was used to describe soldiers preparing for battle by girding up their loins, where they physically pulled up their garments and tied them in order to be able to run freely. Girding or preparing your mind, then, involves actively setting aside all distractions, controlling our thinking, and setting our minds on the things above, which includes thinking on the truth of our salvation and what our future holds in light of that salvation. Set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Ladies, the battle begins in the mind, and we must set them on the things above in order to be ready. 
Our focus should be on the promised future inheritance that is being kept for us and will be revealed to us when Christ returns. Our hope is not in this world. We are exiles here that have been chosen by God for greater purposes, and we have a blessed hope waiting for us. This is the exhortation of Peter to these Christians who are suffering. Work hard at keeping your mind set on all the things you have been granted as an elect exile. Similar to Paul's direction in Philippians 4, 8, where he says, Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. As believers, we should prepare our minds for action and set our minds on things above so that we will be ready to act in obedience, which results in holy living. And this is what Peter moves on and says in verses 14 to 15. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. We have been born again and are no longer controlled by our former passions and sins, but instead are characterized by a heart's desire to be obedient to God in all things. Remember, Peter is encouraging believers who are going through trials and persecution by helping them remember the joys of their salvation. And now he's telling them how to act during these trials. Be holy. Obey. Obey God's word and live out your faith. This brings God glory. This brings God glory because when we live out our faith through our obedience to Christ, we are being like him, which glorifies him. Remember, you are saved by God and sanctified by the Holy Spirit for obedience to Christ. Later in this book, Peter will give his readers exact ways to obey under certain circumstances. And may I say, it's not easy. But it is our responsibility before a holy God. Sometimes, in our human efforts to understand, we think to ourselves that obedience to God will result in something bad. But because God is protecting us now, and the trials we face are part of his sovereign plan... We do not need to fear what will happen if we obey him. Peter goes on to say, if you call on him as father, which really is another way of saying, since you are saved and pray to him as your heavenly father, then conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. We should have such awe of our Heavenly Father that it should cause us to tremble because when confronted by His holiness, our response should be like that of Isaiah in Isaiah 6-5. Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips. We should be in awe of God's holiness and fully aware of our unworthiness, which results in obedience. While we are exiles here on this sin-filled earth, we are not to go back to our former ways because we have been ransomed from those ways. We learn in verse 20 that this redemption of believers was God's foreknown plan before the foundation of the world. The word ransomed or redeemed 
would be a familiar term to recipients of this letter because of the slavery of that day. At that time, people were either freemen, slaves, or freedmen. These freedmen were former slaves whose freedom had been purchased. Here, Peter is using this illustration of a slave being bought with a ransom to describe Christians. Sinners who were slaves to sin, now redeemed, not by things which perish like silver and gold, but instead by the precious blood of the spotless lamb slain for them. What a high price to pay for our redemption from sin. This is God's eternal plan of salvation that he has revealed to us and given to us so that our faith and hope are in him. Ladies, we have been given a magnificent gift that should result in our heartfelt obedience to him. Peter continues to encourage these believers to fulfill the greatest commandments by urging them to love one another. Verse 22, having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. The wording of this may seem a little odd to us, but in essence, what Peter is saying is, because you believed in God and have repented of your sin and are saved, you have been forgiven and have been given a new heart by God, which has the capacity to love other believers. So you should love them earnestly. Peter is exhorting these believers to do the very thing that Jesus says in John 13, 34, and 35. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. The word for love here is agape, which is characterized by an exercise of the will of the person doing the loving, rather than an emotion felt toward the person receiving the love. This type of love takes work. It's not easy. We need to get to know one another so we can share our burdens with one another and come alongside one another, helping bear these burdens and lighten one another's loads. Earnestly meeting one another's needs takes effort and time and involvement in one another's lives. My family has been blessed to be on the receiving end of this type of love from many Christians and many of you in this room through prayers, through monetary gifts, through many meals provided, helping take care of my kids, and even helping me pick up my mother-in-law for Bible study. These are tangible expressions of love that have been shown to us through the body. This type of love being referred to here, this is what's being referred to here, knowing that believers might ask, why should we love each other in this way? Peter explains, since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God. We should love one another fervently because we are saved, and this type of love is consistent with and characteristic of someone who has a new life in Christ. Peter then goes on in verses 24 and 25 to reference a passage found in Isaiah 40 when speaking of the word which has saved us, the gospel. He uses the picture of grass withering and flowers falling to emphasize how the things of this earth are fading, but not your salvation, not the word, not the good news of the gospel by which you were saved. That will never fade. It remains forever. 
It is because of this eternal bond that we have as believers that we can love one another fervently. Ladies, we have been given such an incredible gift in our salvation. In this chapter, Peter helps struggling believers to remove themselves from their current situation by reminding them that their citizenship is in heaven and that is where their focus should be. And this eternal focus should be an encouragement for them to press on in a God-honoring way. My prayer is that those of us who are saved can gain this eternal perspective on the amazing gift of our salvation, which will result in a joy-filled desire to be holy as we endure the trials and persecutions of this sin-filled world. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we just thank you so much for the great gift of salvation, Lord. Thank you for sending your Son to die and rise again for us. Lord, we are in awe of you, and we thank you. Lord, I just ask that you help each and every one of us this week as we celebrate Resurrection Sunday, Lord, that we would have a new look on our salvation and that we would come to you with praises and thanksgiving for all that you've given us and that we have a blessed hope that we keep our eyes focused on. We love you and praise you, and you get all the glory. In Jesus' name, amen.